0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy
1: the Two True
0: Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast.
2: Welcome to Dave Does Podcasts, a Two True Freaks presentation. I am David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And it's time for an all new installment of Dave Does Back to the Future for the New Year. And with this episode, I intend to begin a more Dave like approach to things. What does that mean? Well, in the last two episodes, we looked at the first act of the first movie, and we looked closely at the first five minutes as it painted a picture of our lead characters. And we looked at alternative versions from the script and novelization. This time, we explore one of the main characters, his origins, his motivations, and how Back to the Future as a trilogy is a tale of redemption for one Emmett Lathrop Brown. We're going to explore the life of Dr. Brown from his youth and his fascination with Jules Verne through his childhood on Back to the Future the Animated Series. Then it's back to 1931 and Back to the Future the Game from Telltale Games to see how Emmett committed to science. And finally a tale from the first issue of IDW's ongoing Back to the Future comic that reveals Doc Brown's biggest and darkest secret and the reason he labored for 30 years on the time machine. If you thought you knew Doc Brown and what he was about, be Prepared to take a completely different kind of journey with me as we go back to the future.
1: When this baby hits eighty-eight miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Take that, you mutated son of a bitch!
0: Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! Are you telling me that this sucker is
1: nuclear? Hey,
3: Dad! George! Hey, you in the fight!
1: But the only power source capable of generating 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning.
3: I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan.
1: Well, I tell you, a lot of people have come up to me over the last 30 years to say how um, profoundly Back to the Future affected their lives. People who have come up and said they have chosen a particular career, very often like engineering or astrophysics, because when they were young, even adolescent, they saw the movie and it, it just touched something in them. It's extraordinary. What it is about Doc... Particularly, I'm not sure, except that he, he has tremendous excitement about discovering new things. Being able to think of a problem uh, and, or a solution to something that may be way off the wall, like time travel, and find an answer. And Doc is one of those guys.
2: In my last installment, I talked about the first impressions of Doc Brown. Starting at the garage, where we get his psyche painted on display for us via his invention... And then later at the Twin Pines Mall, when Doc stumbles manically out of the DeLorean, fulfilling the prophecy of the film's opening. And when we meet Doc, he comes at us like Albert Einstein discovered how to make meth in his bathtub, and he wants to share some stories with us. Doc Brown is madness and brilliance rolled into one person. And while we get a solid picture of who Emmett Brown is, we don't get the whole picture. We don't get why he is. For 30 years three decades he has worked tirelessly on this time machine his ultimate personal goal that's been done at great personal and professional cost to him he's broke he's seen as a pariah or a mad scientist even seen as dangerous within his community and his only friends are his dog and marty mcfly a 17 year old high school kid what drives emmett brown where did he come from and what is it that won't allow him to quit on his time machine these are the questions that made me really look at the character and i want to take a look back on him and former profile of Emmett Brown. Now, from the canon, we learned in Back to the Future Part 3 that the Browns were originally the von Braun's, and they arrived in the U.S. from Germany to settle in Hill Valley in 1908. For the record, von Braun was a very common German surname. I believe it's the fifth most common name in Germany. And many German immigrants changed the name to the English translation, Brown. And Doc's ancestors were no exception, taking the name during World War I. As far as Doc being born, there's nothing canon stating the year that Doc is born and how old he is. The novelization says he was born in 1920, and the Telltale Games places it at about 1914. The game is actually the estimate I go by, and the reason is, That puts Doc at age 71 in 1985 and 41 in 1955, so it feels age-appropriate to me, but Your mileage may vary a bit. However, to support my case, Christopher Lloyd himself was born in 1938, making him 47 in 1985. However, he was aged by makeup to be 30 years older. So the 1955 Doc Brown would be perfectly age-appropriate for the actor. Also from the canon, we know that at the age of 11, Emmett discovered the works of Jules Verne and it changed his life. It inspired his lifelong love of science, which seems really fitting to me. Looking at some of Jules Verne's works, we see pieces of the Doc Brown character and pieces of the Back to the Future saga. For example, in Journey to the Center of the Earth, we have a book that inspired a 12-year-old Emmett to begin digging a hole to the Earth's center. We see a lot of cryptography in this book and exploration of the unknown, which is the core of science. The cryptography stands out to me because I think that's key in helping Doc Brown think in a fourth-dimensional manner, to see things from a unique point of view. And it's that unique point of view that allows Doc to understand the physics and the physical elements of time travel. Ultimately, that is the greatest puzzle of all. It's also of note that the protagonist In Journey to the Center of the Earth is accompanied by his younger nephew, which is a bit of a stretch, I'll admit, but still kind of relatively close to the Doc and Marty relationship, the mentor and student. Looking at Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, we see the building of a space cannon, which is speed, distance, and what can be accomplished with it, another building block to the DeLorean and the concept of time travel. But to me, the most relevant and most revealing is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, in which we see the reclusive Nemo, separated from society by his anger. Verne takes his time and builds Nemo throughout this story until we get a picture of a man of science whose country was conquered and his wife and children were murdered in that process process. process. For the Back to the Future saga, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a cautionary tale of science gone wrong and the danger of man to succumb to his own power and the darkness within him. It is also, by accident at least, a perfect mirror version of Doc Brown's journey in the Back to the Future trilogy. And as we get closer to the end of this episode, to the final conclusion, I'll explain why, so earmark this idea for now. Now, the next instance comes to us from Back to the Future, the animated series, and before we move into any discussion of the animated series, I feel like it's time time for us to have a very important talk as we proceed through this show. It's not you, it's me, and, you know, we're taking different paths. No, wait, different kind of talk. We're safe here. You know I'm never going to give you up or let you down. Now, what we actually have to discuss is canon. <laughs> C-A-N-O-N, not canon boom boom, but canon as in what counts as official and what does not. With Back to the Future, the only thing that is solidly canon is the three movies. That's it. I completely stand by that. It cannot be argued. It is scripture. It is written. However, the show and my love of the franchise works a lot off of head canon, and I do take certain contributions as canon personally. When I do so, I do want to make sure to show some justification why I think that. But it is not to contradict the actual absolute canon that is the movies. For example... The IDW comic is very canon to me. I believe it to be canon because it does not contradict the movie. In fact, it only adds to the tapestry. Likewise, in an alternate timeline, Back to the Future the Game from Telltale Games, I feel, is part of the continuity in a different fashion, a different path, if you will. Once again, it doesn't conflict and it contributes to the backstory and kind of stands as a reasonable sequel. And the main centerpiece for these two elements being canon is the direct involvement of Back to the Future co-writer Bob Gale. He is the keeper of time, he keeps things flowing nicely, and adds a certificate of authenticity. Even when Back to the Future of the Game and Back to the Future of the Comics collide, Gale has pointed out that, hey, we're dealing with time travel. Timelines can be rewritten. So these can easily be parallel, alternate timelines, and certainly, as these two come into contact with each other, we will weigh the tales individually. For now, let me comment specifically on Back to the Future, the animated series. The animated series is definitely, definitively not canon, and not part of my head canon. As much as I love the show, and I do, it cannot be canon because of the willy nilly way that time travel is used, and if we're being honest, abused, and just the cartoony nature of it. There are things that go beyond even some of the sillier stuff in the Back to the Future trilogy. I don't want to sound negative because the show is a blast, and I want to include it in the coverage since it's an offshoot, for lack of a better word of the franchise but when the animated series comes up in regular discussions such as this it should be taken as a curiosity it's a bit of a bonus if you will and just to add to the non-canon argument bob gale full-on said that the animated series and the harvey comic tie-in to the animated series take place in their own timeline they're alternate and they are not continuity But, that doesn't mean that insight can't be gained from this show. And there's a single episode, only one people, that shows us a very young Emmett Brown. This is the 11th episode of Season 1, which aired on November 30th, 1991, and I'll be damned, I know where I was on that date. And that was watching this episode. As nerdy as it sounds, I looked forward to Back to the Future on Saturdays, airing on CBS, and flipping the channel to Fox to watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Excellent! And I own both series now, which is awesome. Sometimes it really is the little things that are worth being thankful for. Anyway, the November 30th, 1991 episode was called Gone Fishing, and it was written by Wayne Katz and John Luton and directed by Phil Robinson. Happy, happy, happy. Wait, what? Oh, not that Phil Robinson. Everybody's not happy, happy, happy people. But the plot of the episode is simple. Wanting to find out why their father is afraid of fish, Jules and Vern docks children with Claire, for those who have forgotten, probe his mind and discover an accident from his youth. So the boys head back to 1926 to change the event and Marty tags along and they arrive in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is where young Emmett was staying with his oddball Uncle Oliver. And people actually call him oddball Uncle Oliver to his face, by the way. And they learn that Emmett went fishing alone because oddball Uncle Oliver was trying to set the world record for flagpole sitting and Emmett fell into the river. Marty and the boys take Emmett to the river and Marty falls in instead of Emmett. Trying to rescue Marty, Emmett snags a plane with his fishing line and becomes a daredevil and a film star, Daredevil Emmett. But DW Tannen decides to take advantage of this and wants to send little Emmett over Niagara Falls to his certain doom. Marty and the boys manage to use a portable flux capacitor to save the day and Emmett gives up his daredevil ways. When Jules and Vern go back to the present, which for the record was 1991, Doc is ready to fish just in time for the father-son Big Mouth Bass Tournament. Again, the show was cute, and I had fun watching it in 1991 and now, but we must always remember that the show was marketing to children, and at age 14 in 1991, I was already out of the age range. Having said that, oddball Uncle Oliver, who still has a thick German accent, and, I mean, just to be completely honest, he's all around a German cliche, is part of a real and time-appropriate trend. Flagpole sitting, which is sitting on the top of a flagpole, I mean, it really is that straightforward, was a fad begun in 1924 that went on for a few years. Another feather in the cap for this episode was D.W. Tannen, a Biff ancestor who draws a parallel to a real-world filmmaker named D.W. Griffith. As an interesting note, by 1926, D.W. Griffith, who was a very acclaimed director was struggling to have a box office success so he was prone to doing some different kinds of films. But he never would have stooped to such a deadly stunt as sending a kid over Niagara Falls. Having said that, the reference to D.W. Griffith was appreciated. Let me point out that Jules, Verne and Marty, and that's two commas instead of one, willingly and flagrantly change the timeline and they don't fix it when they're done. They do this on purpose, intentionally, and it's what they set out to do. And this was the element of the show that bothered me. Despite the age range of the target demographic. At least make an attempt to fix the timeline. It's the main point of conflict in all of the Back to the Future movies. I mean, in the first episode of the animated series, they changed the course of a Civil War battle in which Tannins and Claytons were both involved. Clayton's Ancestors of the boys themselves, they could have caused themselves not to be born. But, to the point, do we learn anything about Emmett Brown? Of course, we're dealing with a bit of a reflection here, but, well, this version of Emmett was already extremely intelligent, as Marty learned to his shock and frustration. Hey, you kid! <laughs> what do you know?
1: Several languages, a periodic table, the constellations of the Northern Hemisphere, and the Encyclopedia from to
2: One observation that I made was this Emmett was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He was full of energy, as we know him, and was generally happy and upbeat. That could owe more to youth than a lack of real-world exposure, but it could also be a matter of being away from home and away from his father, Judge Brown. And we will look at why Emmett may have seemed happy to get away from his father right after this podcast promo break.
0: Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire & Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly
3: and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths.
0: Highlights from this legendary era include... Batman number 400. Legends. Mike Barr and Alan Davis. Batman Year One.
3: Batman Year Two.
0: Max Allen Collins. Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd. Ugh. Millennium? You're not
3: doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle.
0: Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you
3: hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family.
0: Batman Year 3.
3: A Lonely Place of Dying.
0: Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman?
3: The Rise of Tim Drake.
0: Legends of the Dark Knight.
3: And that's just up until 1989.
0: Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that?
3: You'll have to tune in to
0: find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Find it on
3: iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com.
0: Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson.
3: You want to find another co-host?
2: Welcome back. I do want to be clear real quick. I want to make a clarification that what I am aiming to focus on in this and several episodes are the characters before time travel interfered, which can get tricky. Essentially looking at the original timeline. As far as that trickiness, Exhibit A, Back to the Future, the game. Not the NES version, though. Someday, I will subject myself to that for your entertainment. Expect many profanities and many tears. But, for this time around, I do plan on touching on the game. Only a small aspect is going to apply here, and since the game is likely fodder for full coverage in future episodes, I want to keep it to a few relevant points stemming from the game. Back to the Future of the Game and its comic adaptation Back to the Future of Citizen Brown center around Hill Valley in 1931. When Marty arrives in this time, one of the first tasks to set things right and rescue a jailed Doc Brown, who's under the guise of Carl Sagan, is to find the 1931 counterpart young Emmett Brown. When Marty does find Emmett, he is working as a junior law clerk thanks to the insistence of his father, Judge Erhard Brown. From what we glean before Marty alters the timeline, Emmett is kind of intimidated by his powerful and strict father, which is why he hides his scientific endeavors from him. It's not made explicitly clear when Emmett was able to stand up to his father and pursue science in the original timeline, but what is known specifically of the original timeline is that there were two key moments in 1931. One is on August 20 5th when Emmett saw the Boris Karloff Frankenstein movie, and it changed his direction in life, leading to the second key event, the Hill Valley Expo in October of 1931. Oh, and just for the record, we learned that Doc had the nickname The Streak, which he got by playing Sandlot football, so he had quick reflexes, and, you know, the fact that he had an interest in athletics at all is kind of surprising. So Emmett Brown, now on the record with what I feel is canonical backstory, was part of an affluent and powerful family in Hill Valley, which syncs up to the Brown estate that we see in 1955 before the house burned down and doc moved into the rather spacious garage now think about this affluence and power mean prominence in the public eye more so being a judge since the judge is a legal role and never doubt the power of public opinion especially in an elected office because remember that judicial positions were retained based on the votes of the community so at all times judge brown was being weighed and measured so the need for emmett to be well behaved and for lack of a better descriptor normal it was a great need Public opinion is important just like any other politician. It makes sense that Judge Brown would be strict, and it also makes sense for Judge Brown to push Emmett into the career of law. It looks good on a resume, it looks like a family tradition, and science wouldn't be viewed as quite as appealing or quite as acceptable, especially the advanced fringe science that Doc Brown was working with as a young boy. So let me throw this idea at you. As a young boy, Emmett Brown discovers Jules Verne. Digging a hole in the backyard, we all played pretend as children we were indulged by our parents or guardians. However, everybody hits a point where playing pretend becomes discouraged, either by our parents or guardians trying to make us into legitimate members of society, or by the harsh hand of ridicule from our peers. My conjecture, and I will underline that word conjecture, is that Doc, who was willing to go all in on his more fantastic whims, probably hit the cold hard wall of both, and in many ways felt isolated. As mentioned, he played Sandlot football as a boy, so he did have some degree of normality in his social interactions, but did he have any connection to his peers, or can you really call them peers? Emmett was extremely intelligent, with great aptitude, he was well read, just naturally, he had this very almost supernatural aptitude for knowledge, and that was what we can even get from his 1955 version. But also in the 1955 Doc Brown, he is a barrier between the real world and his world. For example, he refers to The Enchantment Under the Sea dance is a rhythmic ceremonial ritual. Even in 1931, at the younger doc that we knew about when he was in school, there were senior proms, there were homecoming dances. This certainly wasn't a new concept, especially in 1955. But for Emmett Brown, what need does Emmett Brown have for dancing? Beyond maybe a study in kinetics, I don't know. 1931, Emmett would have probably been groomed and contained by wanting to avoid social rejection and the wrath of his father, so he accepts certain things. Within the game, when Emmett speaks about the career that has been chosen for him, it sounds rehearsed, like he's practiced it repeatedly in front of a mirror, because he's trying to convince himself that this is a valid path for him.
0: Not that I care in the least, because science is the furthest thing from my own area of interest, which is law, but I don't believe you. Mr Corleone, I'll have you know that the law is the very mortar that holds society together, and we in the legal profession are like brick masons building the edifice of the future.
1: Your dad tell you that
2: every morning. Now, it begs to be clarified that I don't believe Judge Brown to have been abusive. I mean, he's not mommy dearest level strict. Likewise, it's possible that Emmett's peers weren't setting out to be cruel, it's just that I mean, at that age, Emmett Brown is weird. He talks in his own language, which he learned from science books that even his teachers have hardly any idea how to read or understand. And he looks at things as components to a whole. He's kind of like Neo from The Matrix. He sees the code and the elements that make up the world and the people around him rather than seeing those people and the world. I don't want to go so far as to call it cold, but there's a bit of a clinical detachment to Emmett that can come off as both aloof and unaware while also bordering on outright insulting, at least to the more common folk. For Judge Brown, this behavior that looks weird looks bad for his family. The whole, if he can't control his house, how can he control the law mentality? For Emmett's teachers and peers, it's off-putting. And trying to communicate with Emmett is nearly impossible, so they avoid him or they reject him, and some may actually mock him regardless of what they do, Emmett would still be alone in a crowded room because of his elevated intelligence. He's a mental giant among ants, without the ego. In a lot of ways, Judge Brown's strong guidance for Emmett's, really for his own good, It's at least well-intentioned, we'll put it that way. Judge Brown wants Emmett to have the normal social interactions, and maybe he sees some of the detachment in Emmett and worries about Emmett's happiness. This is all speculation, I'll fully admit that, but that's my reading of Emmett Brown. As mentioned in the original timeline, before Marty came along in alternate, Doc had a breakthrough on August 25th, 1931, when he saw Frankenstein at the movie theater. Here, he was inspired when he saw the lightning strike and the process of creation, and Emmett rededicated himself to science. Let me start by mentioning that, and I know this is a a bit of a Captain Obvious moment, but the original Mary Shelley story is a cautionary tale, and that's being very gentle. The 1931 version from Universal, the same studio that brought us Back to the Future, by the way, drastically changed things in ways that really bother me. In and of itself, the movie is fine, but as an adaptation of the novel by Mary Shelley, it's a complete failure, and loses the theme very, very early in the movie. And I mention that not just as a mini-critique of Frankenstein, but also... The idea that the change in the movie is why Doc gets inspiration. Science can do wondrous things, powerful things, and it is a responsibility key on that word to make sure that it is used for the right reasons. The fact that Doc was fascinated by the lightning is a nice thematic tie-in to the climax of the first Back to the Future. But, lightning is a very powerful force. Just this force of nature that is far more powerful than any judge in Hill Valley. It's pure, it's raw, it's unstoppable, the very essence of power. And if that power is a part of science, then young Emmett Brown in 1931 has no reason to fear pursuing science. Now emboldened by the power and potential of science, Emmett goes full bore into working on his new project which was the electrokinetic levelator and that's what he debuts at the Hill Valley Expo in October of 1931 at least in the original timeline now the game exists in an altered timeline but doc mentions that originally this was a complete failure however he was able to meet many mentors and this opened the door for his education and mentorship and i want to put this picture very clearly for you imagine this isolated emmet with his big brain finally comes into contact with others who can understand what he's talking about and speak the same language It must have been like a breath of fresh air for Emmett. I can only imagine how liberating it would be to have a real conversation after so long. And while the details aren't available, we know that Emmett told his father of his intentions to pursue science in the original timeline and went on to receive his degrees. However, as with Captain Nemo and Victor Frankenstein, science has a potential to be corrupted or misused, and young Dr. Emmett Brown was about to discover that. And that's a story we'll look at right after I take a quick break. (laughs) Movies, TV, comics, music, Pop Culture Affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the
0: world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com. And be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork.
2: For the final piece of our puzzle we go to the first issue of idw's ongoing back to the future comic which was released appropriately on october 21st 2015 and wouldn't it have just been grand if i could have wrote a hoverboard to buy the comic and not one of those stupid rolling things i mean a real mattel hoverboard wouldn't that have been super But no, we lived in the real 2015. Anyway, the first issue featured two stories, and we'll be taking a look at the second of those, entitled Looking for a Few Good Scientists, written by Bob Gale and Eric Burnham. Art was provided by Dan Schoening, with colors by Luis Antonio Delgado. For the record, Eric Burnham and Dan Schoening will be names that will be coming up often when Dave Does Ghostbusters really gets rolling, since they are the regular team on the ongoing Ghostbusters comic. And they are a great team and have done some awesome things with the Ghostbusters. In fact, why don't I go ahead and recommend that you go out and buy some IDW Ghostbusters today-ish. As for this story, we find Doc in 1943 working as a physics professor at the California Institute of Technology, and he storms into the office of his department head, Robert Andrews Millikan. Dr. Brown has become aware of several colleagues that have been quietly whisked off to what Emmett believes is a secret think tank to aid the United States in the war effort in World War II. Millikan doesn't insult Doc's intelligence and admits that yes, he's right, but Doc hasn't been introduced because of the process involves a home interview, and Emmett's apartment would scare them off. But Emmett finds a solution by meeting with General Leslie Groves and Vannevar Bush at the apartment of his landlady, Mrs. Gomez. This goes fairly well until Bush finds some of Mrs. Gomez's mail and tells Emmett they will be in touch, which is generally code for don't call us, we'll call you. But to Emmett's surprise, when he returns to his real apartment, he finds Groves and Bush there, with none other than J. Robert Oppenheimer, who appreciates Emmett's ability to think outside the box. Emmett is invited to join the think tank, to which Emmett suggests that the most appropriate way to celebrate is with Jell-O, of course. And to those who know their history realize that this is how Dr. Emmett Brown became part of the Manhattan Project, which produced the atomic bomb. (laughs) That's right, the atomic bomb, one of the most destructive weapons in history. So to talk about this story, I want to point out that Doc is teaching at the California Institute of Technology. He teaches at a prestigious college. Let me also note that the department head, Robert Andrews Milliken won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1923. This is a real person who won the Nobel freaking prize. He had been the head of the Norman Bridge Laboratory of Physics at Caltech since 1921, and when Doc first enters the office, Millikan is reading a book by another Caltech alum, and the book is entitled The New Heavens by George Ellery Hale, who discovered magnetic fields and sunspots as well as developing advanced telescopes. To put this in my native Ozark tongue, Doc's hobnobbing with some smart fellas, he sure is. But the point is, that's the world where Doc is when we see him here. He's not a social pariah, a town kook, or a recluse. He's in his native habitat. However, one of the reasons that Millikan says that he didn't put Doc on the shortlist for the project is that, and he specifies this, the interviewers may include psychologists. Now, I can kind of see this. Emmett spent a lot of years in a sort of isolation because of his intelligence. He repressed his true self in a lot of ways, playing down the intelligence, just trying to look normal. That means Doc probably has a hard time dealing with people, and that kind of makes sense with the Doc that we meet. He has trouble relating through normal channels. In short, Doc's still a bit weird. Brilliant, and nobody denies it, but weird. So nothing's changed on that front. He's just in a world where people appreciate weird. They understand weird. And I don't think that Milliken was being mean. He just knew that Doc was a bit of an acquired taste. And for the top of the government think tank, it would be too much. Just to make a quick note on the art, by the way, I do want to mention this. I freaking love Dan Schoening. I love this guy's art. He has an animated style that's unlike anything on stands. It's dynamic. It's fluid. It's so full of life. I'm a fan. I mean, really, these two are such a great team, and I want to once again recommend their Ghostbusters comics because they really deliver. Shoning also does great likenesses. Doc looks like a young Christopher Lloyd based on his high school picture, and the historical figures look like their real-life counterparts, but with pizzazz. Speaking of historical figures, I want to make sure I put this in context. Emmett is convinced that his ruse has failed and returns home to find that the ruse actually helped him. And here are the three top officials on this project. For context, Vannevar Bush was an engineer. He was the head of office for scientific research and development, which coordinated research for the effort in World War II. Basically, if Captain America's project rebirth was real, this guy would have known about it. Would have been at the forefront of it, in fact. Because in all reality, in real world, the research wasn't limited to weapons like bombs or tanks. This also included human experimentation. That's right, this happened in the real world, and let that open your mind to the possibilities. We also have General Leslie Groves as part of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He worked as a a bit of a liaison or oversight of the production of the atomic weapon. More on that in a moment. And of course, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb and the head of the Manhattan Project, several hundred people reported to him. And the scene where Emmett discovers the three of them in his apartment starts with a full-page splash, and it really is detailed. There are a ton of easter eggs in this splash, something that Burnham and Schoening are really good at, like putting Lloyd Dobler in the background of a Ghostbusters comic. Here within the shot of Doc's apartment, we have the saxophone that we see hanging on the wall in Doc's garage in 1955. On the floor is a model of the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and a squid model on the dresser both references to 20,000 Leagues. We also have the black and white cat clock from the garage at the beginning of Back to the Future and the vintage clock placed on the dash of the DeLorean in 1955, the alarm clock that let Marty know it was time to start his run down the street to hit the wire across the road and go back to 1985. These are really, really nice Easter eggs, people. But in this scene, these three high-ranking officials who are seeking the greatest minds of the time to create a weapon capable of ending a war, hopefully just by existing rather than being fired, and what does Doc do? He offers them jello, And that's a bit of the naivete, the social naivete, if you will, that Doc looks at life with and approaches things. At least at this age, he's not fully aware of the world around him to some extent, and that will change. This story represents something major for Back to the Future, something that only the animated series did but with less impact. This story intersects with real-world history. Normally, Back to the Future is confined to Hill Valley and the McFly's, the Tannins, the Strickland's, occasionally the Parkers and the Browns. But here, the story takes place in Pasadena, a real-world location, and home to the real-world school of Caltech, where we have four real-world scientific figures. And key scientific figures at that. The real-world element is a big deal. In fact, it's the key The Doc we know from the first movie is in semi-oscillation with no regular contact, and yet here, Doc works with students and faculty as an educator. I mean, what happened? Well, the answer is very simple and it's right in front of us. The Manhattan Project happened. To give you a timeline here and where this fits into the narrative of real-world history... Albert Einstein defected to the U.S. and relayed his fears about the Axis powers working with nuclear weapons to the U.S., urging them to research into the use of nuclear weapons. That was in August of 1939. By January of 1942, following the attack on Pearl Harbor, of course, and the U.S. entering the war, FDR officially authorized the Manhattan Project, and research began leading to the establishment of the Los Alamos Lab, where work began on creating that nuclear bomb. This is the lead-up to where we find Doc Brown in this story. From here, going forward, to give you more of a timeline, by July of 1945, the first nuclear bomb was tested in New Mexico. Less than a month later, on August 6th of 1945, the bomb was used on Hiroshima, Japan. And a few days later, on August 9th, another was used on Nagasaki, Japan. Effectively, this ended World War II at the cost of somewhere between 190 and 200,000 lives from the bomb, and not all instantly. I don't want to debate the righteousness or the atrocity of the actions taken there, nor do I want to bring anybody down. But this was the result of a project that Emmett Brown is becoming a part of in this story. This atrocity, these bombs are on his shoulders, at least personally. His responsibility, I told you to key on that word. He had a hand in this. Science did this. That power he saw in Frankenstein shows its flip side. It can give life and it can take it in equal measure. The thing is, he can't take this back. No matter what he does, he can't take this back. Does this sound far-fetched? Well, let me back my stuff up here. When we first meet Doc in 1955, Marty encounters him trying to invent helpful items. Goofy, but they have good and very harmless purposes. By 1955, Doc was semi-reclusive and absorbed completely in his science. His science. Not Caltech science or weapons, but the projects he chooses. See, if Doc can undo the damage that he has done, then maybe he can offset it, like a form of scientific karma, and he could spend his life trying to help the world. But fate intervenes. On November 5th, 1955, he falls down. He has the vision of the flux capacitor, the key to time travel, the ultimate redemption. What if he could take it back? What if he could undo the damage? And that question, what if, is powerful. It's the basis of all fiction, and also the basis of all regret or relief. What if I changed history or what if Doc traveled to the future and was able to see how history judges the bombings if hindsight is 2020 How valuable is the perspective of the future? It's that question that could lead a man to spend 30 years and sacrifice his entire fortune, his home, and a family to work towards. It's redemption. When the DeLorean takes its first trip through time with Einstein in it, Doc is seeing the doors open to redeem himself, and through the second and third movie, he completes that journey. Okay kids, this is where Doc becomes a reverse Captain Nemo. I told you to earmark that. For Nemo, he lost his family. He turned to a machine, the Nautilus, to withdraw from humanity and exact his wrath. The Nautilus corrupted him, and anger ate away at Nemo, damning him. For Doc, the time machine allows Doc to go to 1885, before the bomb. Which is why he's so happy being a blacksmith. It's simple, and no blacksmith ever caused mass devastation. More to the point, that weight lifted off of Doc's shoulders was enough that he could allow Clara into his life, into his heart. As he forgives himself, he sees himself as capable of being a husband, of being a human, of having connections. Now, I do want to be clear, Clara's special. I don't want to discount her at all, and that's a topic for an entire episode in and of itself. But Doc had to be there. Mentally and via the time machine, of course. Rather than be damned by the machine like Nemo, or by his invention much like Victor Frankenstein, Doc ends up being saved by it. From his shame at the Manhattan Project to ultimately creating his own way to atone for the perceived wrongs that he had done, Doc's story is complete in the trilogy. From the boy obsessed with Jules Verne to the young man dedicating his life to science after seeing Frankenstein to the man entering the Manhattan Project, Doc really does have an epic backstory. The thing is, that backstory makes the trilogy a tale of redemption. Not just for George McFly or Marty McFly, although them too, but ultimately for Doc Brown. He succeeds in creating the time machine he set out to build, and he finds that the future is unwritten, and that's Doc's ultimate lesson. Despite dark clouds in the past, there can be a sunny tomorrow because we control our destinies. We can choose our path and weather the consequences. And I urge you to watch this trilogy again. Watch it with this perspective. It's the idea of Doc trying to change the past, only to realize that the future is his to control.
1: Your future is whatever you
2: make it. So make it a good one. Both of you. And I'd be willing to bet that Doc's last words to Marty have a bit more weight in light of Doc's salvation. A man freed from his own prison. So to wrap this up, thank you so much for joining me. Remember to leave an iTunes review. It helps the show get noticed. If you have thoughts or comments, of course, the email address is davedoespodcasts at gmail.com. And to close out, in the words of Doc Brown, and extremely appropriate for this episode, remember that the future is what you make it, so make it a good one. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed... All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.